Episode 50, The Rant, Ron Nicolario, Eternal Cardozo High School basketball coach and living legend. For four decades, Ron Nicolario has been knocking down doors to help the youth and making them bust down doors when on the court. He shares his experience being the Dozo Hoops head honcho, his experience being a baseball prospect, how he stays sharp with his X's and O's, and what his future holds. All that and more, my conversation with Coach Nicolario now. The rant has been brought to you by Roar Organic. Everything your body needs, nothing it doesn't. There's a reason they say variety is the spice of life. And with their new organic line comes the following exciting flavors. Georgia peach, blueberry acai, cucumber watermelon, mango clementine, pineapple mint, strawberry coconut. Ah! Roar Organic uses a proprietary electrolyte blend created with organic coconut water, organic cane sugar, and sea salt. It's non-GMO, vegan-friendly, gluten-free, no artificial colors or flavors, no preservatives, and no artificial sweeteners. Just 2 grams of sugar and only 10 calories per serving. Visit Roar.land and use the code REFEREERANT, one word, in the checkout and receive 10% off your next purchase. That's Roar.land code REFEREERANT. The Rant has been brought to you by the revolutionary product for referees and all professionals alike, Neat Tucks. What the tuck? Traditional shirt stays have been tried and true, but never accounted for those professionals that have shorts as uniforms. What do you do when you officiate soccer or lacrosse or even basketball in the summer? Don't forget about baseball umpires, too. Enter knee tucks, which come in style and active versions. Don't get it twisted. You can even wear them at your 9 to 5, too. Listeners of The Rant can visit kneetucks.com and enter the coupon code REFEREERANT, one word, and receive 20% off your initial order. That's REFEREERANT, one word. Happy tucking. Welcome to a special edition of The Rant. I'm your host, Ralph the Ref. I'm with a special, special guest, PSAL all-time winning coach, Ron Nicolario. How are you? Hanging in there, kid. Hanging in there. It's another day and hopefully another dollar. <laughs> okay, so um, I just met this guy on the internet, uh, but we have a lot of people in common. Um, I watched this playoff double-A game um, back in February. I think it was February 14th. You think you were playing construction? Right? Yeah. Do you remember that game? Yeah. So some of my mentors, Kareem Smith and Lavelle Cannon, were on that game, so I was watching. <laughs> and um, I definitely noticed your intensity. And then once I got to know your story, um, I knew a couple of people that have ran through you. Um, Sky Khalil, he was one of your players. And um, I'll be at his wedding May 31st. Nice. And uh, Rob Moses, who was is your assistant coach, right? Yeah, he does a great, great job. He works with the kids around the clock. He does great individuals. He makes it that... I could actually take a back seat for a couple of minutes and uh, exhale while I have a great assistant coaching staff, Rob Moses, uh, Billy Medley, Mike Blissett, and Harold Johnson. They do a great job, and the JV coach, Kirk Papanakis, prepares them so well. He uh, used to be the coach of Division II Queens College. He teaches at Cardozo, and when they made Queens College a full-time job, he had to decide whether he leaves Cardozo and stays at Queens College, but the pay wasn't enough. So he gave that up and coaches the JV. He has two kids of his own now, so he, he puts that effort into his two kids. Right. So um, welcome to the show. Um, so I just wanted to know, what sports did you play growing up? And did you play in high school? Did you play in college? Well, I was a junkie like everybody growing up, baseball, basketball, football. Uh, when I was growing up, it was the sport of the season. Now there was sport for the for every season, meaning like, when you grew up, spring, summer, you played baseball. Fall, you played football. Winter, you played basketball. Now, 
you it's you play one sport all year round, which I think is kind of bad because you don't get a chance to engulf everything. Like there are things in baseball that you do to help you as a basketball player. There are things in basketball to help you do as a football player and, and that. And then the other thing too is a lot of kids put all their eggs in, in let's say, basketball now and then they get to an age where they find out the God's limitations physically they're not going to be a basketball player where they dreamed of that if they would have put their time in, let's say, baseball, they could have made it. I mean, uh, baseball, unfortunately, is a loss in a city sport where I think a lot of inner city kids, if they had the dedication and desire to play the, the game that they say is slow and boring, they'd be very, very good and have a chance to go D1 or even a chance to live the dream and play in the majors. So you, you also played baseball heavily when you were a kid, right? I was uh, one of the best baseball players in Bay Village Little League history, and I went to Cardozo. They say I'm the best baseball player, but I come out of Cardozo. I went to St. John's, was one of St. John's best baseball players, led the nation in stolen bases, 79, played in the College World Series, 1978. My roommate as a senior was Johnny Franco, the New York Met legendary pitcher, who has like over 500 saves, uh, borderline Major League Hall of Famer, and then I got drafted by the White Sox. Got to uh, Major League Camp in 1981, ripped the ligaments off my ankle, and like Columbus, I became history. <laughs> <laughs> so you never tried to uh, re- revitalize and, and resuscitate your career after that once well, you got Well, the hurt? California Angels, you know, figured, you know, they would take it a shot, but, you know, I did the 60 and 638, which is ungodly speed, and when you hurt your main asset and you don't have that much money invested in you, you know, you come and you go pretty quickly. I mean, I, I Johnny Franco even said that, you know, if things didn't go wrong for me in the minors, that he sees me as like a Lenny Dykstra, Mookie Wilson type player. And, you know, Johnny even said to a couple of people, the greatest catch he ever saw I made. In fact, Johnny was pitching. I was playing left field at St. John's and I remember the catch and I couldn't believe I caught it. <laughs> mm. So, the, the story has it is that you started coaching at Cardozo at 21 years old as a basketball coach. How come you never did baseball at that time? I did coach baseball, and, uh, you know, at the Terry and legendary baseball coach, I was assistant. But as things went on, uh, I had a principal over there that was kind of rough, and it was tough to coach two sports because for you to coach two sports, the only way you can do it is retention rights, and you're only allowed retention rights in one sport, which means you own the job after three years. So if you had two jobs and somebody, and you had retention rights in one, if somebody else qualified, applied for that job, they would get it. And you know that's what happens to a lot of jobs in New York City. Now, when you see schools that have somebody coach two sports, it's because that the sport that the person doesn't have retention rights in Nobody wants to coach the sports, mm. so they give it to, to a, you know a person with second job. Right. So, and and you mentioned that when you did it when you were twenty one, and I started coaching. I coach at Kellenberg. I've been coaching for twenty years. The volleyball team. So I have a similar situation, a little bit further um, earlier than you, though, uh, in the career. But um, I just know how difficult it was for me as a twenty one year old to 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 kind of coach the kids that are similar in age, and obviously it gets a little easier. How was that? How was that when you first started? Well, you know what? My first year was rough. I was 1-21. Uh, you know, I knew a lot, or I thought I knew a lot, but that 1-21 year, I actually 
so made me a great, great coach because mm. your ego takes a hit. And I remember that year how everything I thought I did right turned out wrong. And even if I knew it was right and I would continue to do it right, you know, unfortunately sometimes, you know, you run a great play and the kid blows a layup and that's not, you know, that's not your fault that you're going to try your best. But I remember Coach Conaseca from St. John's, a legendary coach. He was like an uncle to me, very close to my father. Uh, you know, I was picking his brain. I went to every practice, every coaching clinic. He introduces me to Larry Brown, the legendary Hall of Fame coach. I start picking his uh, brain. And I remember it was May after my freshman year. It was a weekend, the Big East Coaches Clinic in Hartford, Connecticut. And I drove up there and got my hotel room and got my pad. And I was there Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And Coach Conaseca spoke Sunday morning. He couldn't believe. He goes, Coach, you're really serious about this. You know, he called me Coachy. Uh, and I said, yeah. And, you know, he knew that I had something positive to to give back coaching. And, and, you know, I was a sponge. I went everywhere learning. And I still, believe it or not, every morning I get up and the first thing I do after I read the newspaper and check the computer is I spend 15, 20, mostly sometimes 30 minutes just going surfing the Internet, you know, new drills, new skills, you know, pickandpop.net, just... You know, you type in scenarios, how to handle a crazy parent that's berating you. You know, just, you want to constantly learn. And I, I think if I stop learning or trying to learn, I think it's time for me to quit coaching. Mm. Um, so you mentioned your parents a couple of times, and I know that your father had uh, saved Martin Luther King's life in 1958. What do they mean to you, and how do you think they shaped you uh, being an, uh, a coach early on? I owe the world to them. I mean, you know, everything was sitting in their house now, you know, all my... Both my parents are dead. My brother's dead. You know, I'm the only one living, the only McClario left. But, uh, you know, life goes on. One of the things that, you know, the last year has been really, really rough. And, uh, you know, until you go through it, nobody else's words can help you get through it. And you have to con yourself. Last year, I conned myself one way. Now, conning myself. Because my mother passed away April 2nd, 2002. We had the funeral April 11th. The way I con myself now, like Mother's Day or whatever, it's like I know my mom, my brother, my father up in heaven, and if they saw me down here being miserable or they see, you know, the moments that I, you know, get disappointed or shed a tear, that they would say, hey, you know, we're disappointed. You're down there. We want you to live every day to the best of your ability. You still have a lot of life, hopefully, to live. You have a lot of coaching left to do, and... You know, we wanted to see you do it with the same verve and vigor that you did it when we were there. So, you know, they would be disappointed in me. So that's like a, a con, like you have to con your kids into doing something. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I have to con myself into going. And then, you know, you forget about it and you go through a day or two or a week, sometimes maybe a month. And then, of course, it hits you again. And then you got to find a way of conning yourself. <laughs> so I think parents uh, have evolved and obviously the kids have evolved over time since the duration of you coaching. Um, how do you, what do you, how would you describe your philosophy of coaching and how do you think it's changed over the years? Well, I was the all time hustler as a baseball, basketball player and hustle intensity desire is something that, you know, I, I really demand from my kids and, uh, my first year being one in 21. I mean, that's amazing because here it is 38 years later and I still see that one in 21 year as 
the guiding light because if I ever forget that year, that year might come back to haunt me and, and see it be relived. Uh, you know, you realize, especially in basketball, because you can't steal first base, you can't hustle to first base unless you hit the ball. Basketball, there's no such thing as hustling too much, you know. Uh, you know, you hustle, you push the ball. You can do so much, you know, with, with underachieving talent. You can make them achieve. You could make mediocre players above average. And then I was lucky, you know, I had a lot of mediocre players that I made a little above average. And then we started winning, and then I started getting above average players. And I like to think I made them very, very good or great. And then when I got very, very good players, it gets a lot easier. I mean, <laughs> you know, let's face it, the... You know, I have a play called Continuity that I think is a great motion play. It's something like the Golden State Warriors use. Uh, I ran it in the 80s with, you know, nerdy nerdy Jewish kids. And, you know, the play ran pretty well. And then all of a sudden I got uh, Ray for Skip to my Lou Alston, an NBA player, Dwayne Woodward, who uh, was an all-Big East player, played overseas for about 10 years, made a lot of money, now is assistant coach at Seton Hall University and Charles Cranford who was the leading scorer in the city the year Stephon Marbury was a senior. He averaged 33.5. Marbury averaged 28. He ended up going to St. Louis, started in the backcourt with Larry Hughes, transferred to Northeast and averaged 18 a game. So when I ran the play with them, <laughs> the play ran a lot better, you know. And, you know, that's when you realize. Because, you know, as you get older, you, you know, I want my players to get over themselves, meaning... I want them to get over the, the fact that they think they're God's gift to the world or that they're the greatest player ever in Cardoza history or that, you know, the game will stop if they don't play anymore. You know, just like you have to get over yourself as a coach that, you know, that, that you're the greatest. You have to learn to accept defeat, which I hate accepting. Uh, you have to learn to accept that you're not going to reach every kid. You have to learn to accept that you're not going to win the city championship every year, even though that's my goal. Mm. So you, you mentioned a lot of people, Luke Arnaseca and obviously your father, have been mentors to you. Um, if you I could also list- have to add Ed Tatarian, the baseball coach at Cardozo, and Howie Aarons was like a big brother to me. He was the great tennis coach at Cardozo who uh, unfortunately died of cancer about two years ago. So those, if I had a, a Mount Rushmore, people that helped me, it would be my father on the top of Mount Rushmore, right underneath them. Coach Karnasaka, Coach Al Madikin, Coach Etetarian, and just below uh, Howie Aarons. But to be on my Mount Rushmore, I think, is awesome because of I appreciate everybody that's helped me in, this, in, in my life. And I know that no matter how good you are, if somebody else doesn't help you get there, you're never getting it. Mm-hmm. And that Mount Rushmore, how do you think they've shaped the way you've treated kids uh, moving forward, do you think that you've took a meld of all of them and then kind of made them your own style? Well, in, in the in the 70s, Ed Deterian was the greatest coach, but he was no-nonsense. I mean, on the baseball field, I mean, it was hustle, intensity, desire, no mistakes, you know, no BS, no excuses, you know, almost like a drill sergeant, but in a good way. Then I had Al Maddock, and he was really, really good, and uh, he, he had a little Don Rickles in him. And, you know, you learn to get the funny lines. And, he you know, he would know how to break tense moments with, you know, a cute little saying or a funny little joke because there is a lot of pressure. You know, there is a lot of pressure. And I learned that, you know, uh, there's pressure playing for Cardozo basketball because if you 
play 16 game season and you're 15 and 1 people in Queens think that's like a failing year being right. 15 and 1 they talk about the one team that beat you or the one school that can only get one win all year long who would you want to beat it's Cardozo you know the king of Queens and then uh, Conaseca was just great I mean there's never been a a human being that has given so much, cared so much, uh, you know, thoughtful. I mean, he still calls you on Christmas. I mean, you know, things that people should be doing for him, he's still doing for people. Howie Aarons, he made me feel like I was coaching the Knicks. You know, he made me feel great. He had he had such positive pizzazz. You know, he made you feel great. I mean... You know, when you were winning, he made you feel like you were John Wooden, and when you were losing, he made you feel like you were going to be the first pick in the NBA draft. Mm. That's that's good information. Um, how do you think New York City basketball has changed from the 80s to the 90s to the 2000s and all the way to the present time? It's totally nuts now. It's uh, Too many people have a say that don't know what they're doing. Too many people have answers to a question they don't even know. Uh, money has gotten into the game where people now make money. Uh, I never did it for money. I did it out of love. I mean, I have to laugh because I have one of my former players, Royal Ivy, who I love, and he might be, if we had to have a Mount Rushmore of people who've done it the right way at Cardozo, you know, academically, socially, and basketball-wise, and how they achieve, well, Royal was an all-city player. He got MVP when he won the city championship in 99. He went to Texas, still holds the record for most career starts at Texas, uh, was a second-round draft choice, played in the NBA 11 or 12 years, now is assistant coach at the Knicks, so he, he's done it the right way. But what kind of scratches your head is that, you know, he has a nice four-year contract, his agent negotiated. But I look at monetarily, he made more this year than me, not in his salary, in meal money. <laughs> I mean, he made more in meal money because I see the NBA, they get like $130 or $140 a day on the road. So when you think of what I get, I'm just saying, boy, and, you know, that's why at the end you start feeling like an LS, a lifetime schmuck, <laughs> you know, because, you know, you do need some money to pay the bills, you know. I mean, you know, you're doing this favor, you're doing this clinic or a workout for nothing. And, I mean, you know, maybe it's time to, like, say, hey, listen, I'll do it, but you got to. Throw a few shingles in my way. Do you think players were rougher in the 80s and 90s in comparison to how it is? And I know that the officials have a mandate now where there's a lot more freedom of movement, where the game is officiated a lot different as well. Well, when I first started coaching, there was no three-point shot. There was no shot clock. They still had the hash mark where you had to go over the hash mark on the side. A lot of the people now would say, what's what's a hash mark? Well, if you see some of the courts from over there, right, uh, sideline extended, you see a, an 18-inch line going out. That's the hash mark. Most of the courts removed it by now. But, you know, the rules have changed. The game has changed. And uh, I think the toughness has changed. I mean, the kids in Brooklyn are still tough. The kids in Bronx are tough. But, I mean, you know, Queens has a lot of people that, you know, like to walk over to the Ashton truck, Mr. Softy. <laughs> you know, they think they're tough. But when the going gets tough, do they really, really have it? Some of them don't. Some of them do. Uh, the internet has changed everything. The parents have gotten involved. You know, they expect if their kid hits two jump shots, how come Mike Krzyzewski from Duke hasn't offered my son? I mean, I remember when I was playing baseball at St. John's, and we were really, really good. 
And our philosophy was we hope we could do something great so that maybe we'd still be in the lineup tomorrow. Because mm. we were so talented that if you were two for three, three for four, and the next day you went 0 for four, Coach Joe Russo might not write your name in. Mm. And that happened. So the kids today, you know, they go two for three, three for four, maybe score 20 or 15 in the basketball game. They expect to stretch that out for a season or for a career or for life. You know, I, I laugh at a lot of these kids. They have, you know, you know, the $1 million move that they expect to, to end up getting, a, you know, a 10-year NBA contract off of one move. Mm. <laughs> so you also mentioned Royal Ivy and you also mentioned Skip. Who are your other people on the Mount Rushmore of the game of basketball and also the, the guys that you uh, feel are winners in the game of life? Well, if you strictly go Cardozo, I mean, it's hard to say. They always hit me with who's the best Cardozo player. I can never do that. That would be like if you had eight or ten children and somebody said, which ch child do you love the most? I mean, they're all the best. In fact, some of the kids that have meant so much to Cardozo's winning tradition might not be kids that had the best stats. There were a couple of kids that weren't even starters, but they meant so much to the program, everything they brought, the grit to practice, the team togetherness, the, you know, when the going got tough, they made sure that they were there to get under the kids' skins because, like I said, there's pressure playing for Cardozo. I mean, you have to win. I mean, and then there's pressure. You know, we're, we're the only Queens team since, I think, mid-'80s to win a city championship if you're playing at the Garden, you're playing at Barclays Arena, and, you know, you step to the foul line, and you're down one like Ray Salnave did in 2014, and everybody wants to be in that situation. Nobody realizes when you're in that situation, you know, you pull a Ralph Cramden on the honeymoons. It's humna, 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 because you got to hit the foul shots. Mm. You know, being there is one thing. Taking them, hitting is another thing. And you know what? What happens if a young kid gets to that situation and fails. How is he going to handle it? You know, I mean, they have to be able to get up the next day, walk into school, have everybody look at them like, you know, and, and, you know, they tried their best. I mean, that's why it's really weird how if you can get to the Garden of Barclays and you lose, those kids on that team feel so miserable and it kills them for so long. You hope it kills them for so long because it means something than some team that didn't even make the playoffs that their kids never feel that pain of losing. Hmm. You know, it's 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 kind of weird. It's a shift shift in perspective, I'd yeah. say. Um, over the years, who do you think were the toughest players that you ever faced, and who do you think were the toughest coaches that you ever faced? Well, there were so many. I mean, way way back, there was Ray Haskins. Uh, you know, uh, Tiny Morton has been a, a great foe, even though <laughs> it's been tough because. Tiny, you know, had rules that he followed, and you know we can't follow those type of rules. But you know, great coaches find a way. Uh, there's been so many great coaches. Billy Turnage is up and coming, uh, coach at Wings. There's Ryan Queen. I mean, over the years, it's just it's tough because every coach poses his uh, his own thing. Like Johnny Mathis plays a great, great John F. Johnny Mathis, the coach of John F. Kennedy, he plays a great one-one-three amoeba that uh, he takes away the one or two shooters you have, and if you don't run a great zone offense, you're going to be really stymied by him. And he's, you know, a lot of teams think it would be easy to beat Johnny, but, you know, you have to be able to, if his team gets back on defense, you don't get that fast break, 
do you have the ability to go against that one one three? I mean, so many coaches over the years. That's like that's like getting back to saying which is the the child you like the most. Because, and then the other thing too is then there's teams that you get overly prepared for, and then all of a sudden natural tendencies for the kids to exhale because you beat a team by twenty at home. You go to their court now. All of a sudden you find yourself late third quarter only up one or down one because kids don't realize what you did twenty two weeks ago doesn't mean anything today. Mm. You know. Um, what do you think lingers in your mind more? Your greatest wins, meaning um, maybe maybe you become becoming the all-time PSAL winningest coach, championships, or do you think your bitter losses that you can never oh, forget? No, 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 <laughs> no, no. It is the losses kill me. I mean, I've gotten to the point now. Uh, coach Mike Bissett and I, you know, we 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 take losses. I mean, I don't want to compare it to a a real life funeral, but that's how it feels like because. Uh, We've had some excruciating losses, and you know when you you put so much into it, and it means the world to you. And then now, you know, not having biological family or a wife or, or biological kids, that they become your family. And then when you lose that that tough game, as long as you have a tomorrow, the season's not over. But if you lose that tough game in the playoff, it's like a death in the family because those seniors now will never play for you ever again. You know, mm. you'll, you'll, you'll love to go to graduation to see them graduate. You want to see them get to college, which, thank God, I think 99.99% of my kids have gone on to college. So many on scholarships, play basketball. You know, down the road, you'll get invited to their weddings, which in the next two months, I'm actually going to be going to three weddings of former players. So that makes you feel good that, you know, 10, 15 years, 20 years later, they're inviting you to their wedding that, you know, that's special because you don't just get invited to anybody's wedding and the losses kill you. You know, you know, I still replay some great wins, but that's the the funny thing about coaching. You know, when when you hit a lucky Hail Mary shot, like I'm sure the coach of Toronto Raptors, Nick Nurse, he's not replaying the thrill of Draymond, I mean, uh, Kawhi Leonard's shot going around the rim four times in as much as he is them blowing that 10-point lead last right. night because, you know, the thrill of victory, you know, you don't play, hey, this went right for me. you just happy it went right or you guessed it went right or you like to think you had something to do with a play call. But when things go wrong, like a kid misses a layup or, or a Hail Mary, we lost the game about four years ago, a kid, you know, we had two starters out and we played in another school and we uh, tied it and we stole the ball and we laid it in with two seconds, three seconds to go. The kid held the, sh- the, the clock because there were no more timeouts. So when we hit the layup at three, it stayed at three. They ended up inbounding the ball. The game should have been over. And the kid hits a 60-foot bank shot after the clock if they didn't hold the clock. And the referees couldn't see it. And, you know, we lost. And you remember, like, you know, come on. If that kid did that 100 times in a row, it's not going in. Right. You know? Um, if you had to pinpoint one bitter rival, dead or alive, friend or enemy, during your tenure at Cardozo High School, who would it be? Is it Coach Cranby? You know, you know, I would have to say if I had a gun to my head where I was forced, because the rivalries change over the years, but we, we go back because uh, Coach Cranby, I got to know in 1981 when he was working at Cardozo in the Big Apple games, and he was different. He was different. Uh, a lot of people knew that supposedly he didn't like me, I didn't like him, but 
you know, I think that's that's not true. I think we were so competitive. And I know this, that I was substitute teaching at Cardozo, and the principal of ISA found out I was substitute teaching and offered me a position of uh, being the dean of students over there. So, you know, more money, more everything. So I went over there, and I didn't realize I opened up it opened up a whole world to me uh, because... I didn't realize that so many talented players went to ISA from the 40 projects that Coach Granby had that now all of a sudden started going to Cardozo. And I think that kind of really hurt Coach Granby that, you know, his big feeder school now started going to Cardozo. And we had a lot, a lot of battles. I mean, a lot of tough battles. You know, the kids would come to me and say, he said this about me, and I'm sure... You know, kids said to him, you know, I said this about him. I, I make sure I try not to say much. But it was actually weird because we didn't really talk that much. And I don't know, about six, seven years ago, we were at a New York City Hall of Fame induction ceremony. Uh, and he was in the bathroom. I walked into the bathroom and we were different stalls. And all of a sudden, I hear him go, "Hey, Ron, huh?" And did you? He goes, "Something. Did you see Cecil Edwards, Cecil Watkins, who was in a wheelchair?" And you, so we started talking, and then we started talking more. And then he comes early to a game at Cardozo, and my ritual at Cardozo is I open up the sliding doors. It takes three minutes and forty seconds. I sweep the court once. I sweep the whole court a second time, and then I mop the court. And he sees me. And he's sitting there, and he goes, Ron, don't you get anybody to help you? I said, Coach, you know nobody helps you in this job. He goes, the custodians? I said, I laugh. I go, the last 20, 30, 40, 50 times this court has been swept them up. It's Ron DeClario. So we started talking, and then uh, uh, there was a certain persons. Uh, there was a death in the family where I ended up going to. Then his last game was a Saturday. He needed the game to make the playoffs because he's retiring. And he was against Cardozo. I thought they had a chance to beat us, but his best player was averaging 30 points at the time, uh, sprained his ankle severely. So he, he he didn't really have a chance. You know, we kept it close. We won by about 20, and that was the end of his career. And, you know, it was nice to see that the school kind of forgot about him. You know, they have a little piece of paper up there, Coach Granby Gymnasium, where it shouldn't be a piece of paper. It should be indebted in stone or metal. But it was very nice to see that they renamed the street Ch Coach Chuck Granby Way. And every time we play Campus Magnet now, you know, I walk and I stop. And, you know, a big part of my history is the battles with Andrew Jackson, now Campus Magnet, the 80s, 90s, 2000s, up to, I think it was 2014 when he gave it up. And I said, damn, you know, when you look at your career, how many years of your career is battling a foe? You know, something like a Larry Johnson, a, uh, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird scenario or a Duke Carolina scenario, and that was in Queens, the Andrew Jackson, Campus Magnet, Cardozo scenario. Mm -hmm. Um, so how has your relationship with officials been over the years, and how do you think it's changed? 
Oh, I mean, the referees will tell you. I mean, I, I'm too busy yelling at my players. I might yell, hey, he got hit, and then I'll yell to my kid to get back. Or, hey, that's a foul. You know, maybe once in a while, like at halftime, I'll call the referee over and, you know, say something. I mean, there was a a game we played at Baruch College. And if you ever go to Baruch, you have to walk down the stairs two flights. And we played Rice. My best player was hurt. I thought I was going to get my behind kicked. With my best player, but without him, I knew we'd get kicked. They had Kemba Walker, had seven for three, Shigari Elite, and we got our butts kicked. So I was upstairs sitting there, and the three referees come walking up, and you know, they know I don't complain, you know. So they see me, and they, hey, coach, and I said, you know, you guys killed me. So they go, what? They were surprised I said something like that. I go, you guys really killed me today. They go, what are you talking about? I said, no, you really, really, really killed me today. You did a terrible job. So they go, what'd we do? I go, you threw the ball up to start the game. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so it always comes from a place of respect, and, yeah, yeah. you know, we got a job to I do. Know, you know what, too? Like, uh, there are times, you know, over the years, you, you scrimmage another school. They come to Cardozo, we go to them, and it always seems like once a year, whenever we schedule a scrimmage, the referees don't show up. You call the assigner. Oh, I thought it was tomorrow. I thought, you know, whatever it was. And, you know, you want to play the scrimmage. So my assistant coach is coach, and I grab a whistle and I ref. And, you know, you know how hard it is. Mm. I mean, it is hard. I mean, you know, like I see these fans yelling about these NBA refs. Do they make mistakes? Listen, they're very, very, very good. I mean, I don't know of any referee that purposely says, you know, I'm refereeing Cardozo. I'm purposely going to, you know, every close call is not going to go Cardozo's way. Or an NBA ref says, I'm coaching, uh, I'm refereeing the game against Golden State, and every time Curry touches the ball, I'm going to call the walk. They don't do that. I mean, it's only human, you know, and the NBA has a great system because I know Ronnie Nunn, I know Lee Jones, and, you know, every call and every game is evaluated, looked at, and, the one thing I wish the PSAL would go back to doing, when I first started coaching, you were allowed, you were supposed to rate the referees. But you were allowed to give five a U. And as long as you give them a U, you would never get them. Now they asked you to rate them, but it doesn't matter. You can give them a five. That doesn't mean you're going to get them more, which is a high rating. You can give them a zero, which is a low rating. That means you're not going to get them. And what also makes it bad, I found out, is that uh, when you rate a referee now with this computer system, they find out what you're giving them, so it's bad. But, uh, you know, there there basically is no referee that I would not want to have. There's only one referee, and I won't mention the person's name, that I don't want to have. And it's just everybody that's told me that that's the way that person is, that, you know... If you, know, they, if you said something to them or if they had a grudge from 1981 and they're still refing, well, they're going to hold that grudge. So, mm. You know, but, uh, you know, it's just the way it is. You know what I mean? You know, I have no problem with the refs. So last year, my volleyball team had a bit of difficulty only because I think I've realized that there's a big change in the way kids perceive the world. And what I mean by that is that with the advent of using the phones all the time and social media and technology... Um, what do you think are the challenges today, coaching the kids, with all of that taken into account? Well, it's it's a whole different world because what is normal to people 
that were growing up in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s is abnormal to kids now. Mm. So what I, you know, what I, I say this to a, lot, to a lot of people. What is obvious to the obvious is oblivious to the oblivious. Like the kids don't realize. You don't, you don't play on your cell phone if you're in class. Right. You're in practice. I have no problem with the kids bringing up the cell phone and their charger and plugging it in during practice. But I do have a problem with them going over to the cell phone mm. every 10 minutes of practice. You know, I mean, we have certain rules at Cardoza that I try to enforce, you know, and they look at me like, why are you enforcing? I said, listen, these are the rules. You know, I mean, you know, and I'm, I'm you know, I said, listen, let, we'll talk about the rules. If you think the rules are unfair, let's, you know, discuss why and what you think should be, ha- be you know, be done about the rule or... Why don't you ask me why I have the rule? You know, why I, you know, there's reasons why you have rules, you know? Mm. What do you think your biggest regret is as a basketball coach? If you have any. Right now, with what's going on at Cardozo, the regret I have is that I put so much time and effort and money into becoming the best coach I can be. I mean, I do clinics for USA Youth Basketball. I do clinics here. I had uh, articles printed in magazines throughout the country, articles in Italian basketball magazines, German basketball magazines, Spanish basketball magazines. The fact that uh, the way I feel I'm being treated at Cardozo, the fact that I'm still at Cardozo instead of trying to live the dream of becoming a college coach or or a pro coach. A lot of people thought I would be really good in the NBA because I do a lot of NBA skill work. So I think that's my biggest regret that... All I did was make Cardozo the best it could be, whereas Cardozo right now, you know, and it's a principal that has told me, you know, thank you, but, you know, adios amigos. Mm. Um, Based on everything that you said, what do you think are the attributes? What do you think it took to get to where you are today? You know, Bernie Goba was assistant principal at junior high school eight. Or ISA, which has probably one of the most famous AAU tournaments in the country, run by Pete Edwards. When I got there, he saw something in me too, and I didn't really like being a teacher. But he said, he goes, Ron, you love being a coach. And he always told me, he goes, one of your biggest attributes is in the classroom, I know you had no, you know, you always exhaled and couldn't deal with it. But he goes, as a coach dealing with the kids, you never wanted to see a kid fail. Like if a kid had a weakness in his game, you were adamant that you could get that weakness to be less weak, you know, and maybe be a strength, you know. And I and that was one of my, if a kid had a weak left hand, it would be doing every left hand ball handling drill. Every left-hand passing drill, every left-hand layup drill, you know, it didn't matter, you know, how much. I mean, Dwayne Corswell, who ended up being a 1990 first-round draft pick of the Sacramento Kings, might have been the worst player ever to try out for Cardozo. And he actually was Andrew Jackson, <laughs> and Coach Granby cut him. Mm. And he was six foot seven, six foot eight. He was going to leave to go to uh, to either. Cardozo Van Buren, that's a that's a funny story because I was a really, really good baseball player and then, you know, when the Major League Baseball thing died and I was coaching at Cardozo, I would play high-level softball. 
So remember, it was a Saturday morning, a 9 o'clock doubleheader on Hillside Avenue across the street from the YMCA. And we were short two firemen that were getting off work at 9. They'd be there like 9, 10. But we needed 8 to start the game. Otherwise, we were going to forfeit. So one of my players, who was a baseball, basketball player, Russell Castle, wasn't there yet. So we had to get him. We had a forfeit time. And it was a big playoff game. So they said, you know, then there was no pay phone. I mean, there was no cell phones. You had to go across the street. It was a YMCA. So I'm walking across the street to, to quickly call Russell Castle, who only lived about 10 blocks away. And I see this big kid walking with a basketball. So I go, hey, you. And he's looking around like, you. He goes, you play basketball? He goes, yeah. I go, are you good? He said he was good. So he looked like he was in sixth grade, seventh grade. You know, he had that really young-looking face. So I go, you in high school? I mean, you in junior high? He goes, no, I'm in high school. So everybody's yelling, will you leave the kid alone? Go make the phone call. I said, stay here. Oh, so before I went in, I said, I go, you play? He goes, yeah, I played for Andrew Jackson. I go, you're full of crap. He goes, what do you mean? He goes, I played Andrew Jackson this year. I know everybody in the team. I never seen you. So he gave me some BS, you know. So I go, well, you playing for them next year? He goes, no, I'm transferring to Cardozo or Van Buren. So I go, why those two schools? He goes, both of those coaches have called me up. They want me to transfer. So I said, you're full of crap. He goes, what do you mean? He goes, I'm the coach of Cardoza. So I called quickly. Russell's mother said he left. He'd be there any second. All of a sudden, I see Russell. So I grabbed the kid. I said, you're going to what? So I said, you're full of crap. But here's, there was something about the kid I believed in. So there was a softball box, you know, the clinches. So I wrote my phone number on the box. And by the time I got home, his mother called. Make a long story short, she said, no, she spoke to the guidance counselors. Of course, the kid stretched the rubber band. And it ended up, uh, the mother tried to get them, get him into Cardozo. If not, he was going to send her son to uh, King, what was it? King Street, South Carolina, to live with the grandparents, which I ended up going there later on. But uh, he ended up getting in Cardozo. He tried out for Cardozo, and... I, I never saw him play. Uh, we do a layup drill, and he missed. He shot an air ball on a layup. <laughs> so everybody started laughing him, and you can see his self-esteem. So I go, this kid is going to play major Division One basketball, blah, blah, blah. And they looked at me like I was crazy. So I start taking him every day, every day, an hour, two hours. Weekends, we'd go to 46 Park near Cardozo, and I'm doing drills. It starts to rain. He puts his jacket on and goes, where are we going? Uh, he goes, it's raining. I said, no, 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 we're not leaving. We just, we, I was in a touch football league. I feel if he would, we had him as the giver to block. We, we had the short plays and it was amazing. He did everything, everything, I mean, and he wrote me a beautiful letter thanking me when he got to Temple, play for Coach Cheney, and he ended up being, in 1990, the 18th pick in the first round, he still holds the record most block shots in a season for mm. the Sacramento Kings and most rebounds in a quarter for the Miami Heat, 15. Unbelievable. Yeah. <clears throat> what do you think it's going to take to get to where you want to go, and where do you want to go? You know, I always thought I was where I wanted to go, Cardozo. Now, you know, there were reasons why I didn't... I always wanted to be at St. John's, the Knicks, and the Nets. But, you know, when my, when my father passed away, it was one thing. But when I found my brother dead, uh, July 19th, no, July 20th, 2002, 
and I moved back in with my mom, I knew deep down inside that I wasn't leaving New York. You know, I could never leave my mom. Now that my mom's not around, if the right offer came along, you know, I would owe it to myself. I would speak to my closest friends, my assistant coaches, because they would say, you know, the way things are in high school basketball, basically done everything you could. You know, what am I going to try to recreate, the, reinvent the wheel? But, you know, I don't know. I don't know. You know, sooner or later, I know I won't be there. I mean, it might be 20 more years and, you know, all of a sudden I'll have the heart attack and they'll bury me under the sea at Cardoza half court. But, I don't, you know, I don't know. I mean, but now when I would say I'm never leaving now, you know, I know. I mean, I might leave just because of, you know, maybe I feel betrayed. But maybe sometimes betrayal is a good thing. Mm. You know, you don't know. Um, do you think that your best memory as a coach was becoming the public school athletic league all-time winningest coach? That's what, you know, I mean, I'm also the New York State public high school winningest coach. I think that's what I'm, I'm you know, known for. But uh, I won an award 2002 National Association of Basketball Coaches. It was the second year they did it. And I was the first high school coach to ever get the Guardian of the Game Award. And two of the four people besides myself were John Wooden and Dave Gavitt, who started the Big East. And one of my biggest mistakes was, I don't know why I didn't take a picture with myself and Coach Wooden. You know, but uh, I think that was the first time for almost the only time that I was really nervous giving a speech. You know, I got up there and you sit in the crowd and you see Jim Beheim and you see, you know, Mike Krzyzewski and you see Roy Williams and you see all of the greats of the game. And here I am, a high school coach. You know, that would might that might be it. And then, you know, as far as the two city championships, you know, as a coach, you can, you know, there are so many coaches that never get one. Mm. You know, I mean... There were so many coaches that just getting to a Final Four or a city championship game would feel vindicated. But, you know, I also like to think a lot of the kids that stay in contact with me that, you know, every year or two, you know, write me a note or tell me stuff about how, Coach, if I didn't go to Cardozo or if you didn't smack the crap out of me or you didn't come by my house, because, I mean, I was famous in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, going to people's houses and knocking them out, you know, Parents that couldn't control their kids, I would be there. That they said, "I'm so glad that you were crazy, because if you weren't crazy, I would I would have been a loser in life. Now I'm a success, mm -hmm. and that makes me feel good." The game of basketball. What do you think it means to you? What do you think it's given you in your life? It's given me notoriety now. I mean, wherever I go, Madison Square Garden, the Final Four, everybody comes over to me. I mean, you know, it was a little embarrassing going to the Big East tournament in the Final Four this year because. Not in, in a bad way, but, you know, so many people know me, but uh, with all of the fanfare, media stuff, uh, TV stuff, newspaper stuff, from the principal taking my office, I mean, I can't believe three, four, five hundred people are coming over me that heard about it, saw about it, but, you know, finally saw me in person and would say, and I said, you know, this damn office is never going to die, <laughs> mm. you know, and, you know, it's like, I'm hoping maybe one day, just like the Notre Dame Cathedral in, uh, in Paris, 
being rebuilt. You know, maybe maybe I'll get a chance to rebuild it. But then I say, if that's my ultimate goal to be to rebuild something that shouldn't have been torn down, maybe I should put my efforts into something else. One of the things I would love to try to do, and you know, I would meet with people on the board of Ed or the mayor's office or the Yankees or the Mets or the Knicks or the Nets or the NBA, is I think I could really do a great job getting up every day, going to a school or a youth group, speaking to inner city kids, you know, because I have really, really good stories, you know, and I have a way with the kids, you know, because once you're 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, and you screwed it up, you know, the odds are you're not going to write the, the screwing up. Mm. And, you know, like I always say, I, I think I'm a really, really good coach, or people might say I'm a great coach. And then I always say, you know, when the kid is 15, 16, 17, 18, you know, I could try to mold them, but I said, I tell my kids, I've never had a kid, and I want you to answer this question because I need this question answered. One of you guys do it all wrong. You do it all wrong. You you don't take advantage of being on the team. You don't take advantage of going to class. You, you, you don't get your high school diploma or you drop out of college. You do it all wrong. You, you get involved with the streets, and all of a sudden you find yourself having your rights read to you. Uh, now you're 25. How do you go back from being 24, 25 year old, waking up, realizing you screwed it up? How do you go back to being a 15, 16 year old and do it over and correct it? You can't. Mm. And I always ask them, how can you do it? And I said, please, I, that's the one answer as a coach I want to get. Because I know at Cardozo, I'm a teacher coach. You know, if I was the NBA, I, I would be a teacher at a game of basketball. You know, I would still try to impart my knowledge on the young guy's lies because, you know, now all of a sudden they think they're the best-looking guy in the world because they have 100 girls falling at their feet. No, no, they're not falling at your feet because you're the best-looking guy. They're falling at your feet because you're in the NBA and they look at you as a dollar sign. You know, there will be some people, you know, there will be some girls that don't look at you that. You know, all of a sudden everybody, you know, all of a sudden now you're going to a club, you know, instead of buying a six-pack of beer for $8, now you buy, you know, 16 beers at a club for $180. Or you you know, you like a bottle of champagne that you can buy Andre for $5.99. Now you buy five bottles at $599 and it's $3,000 for the, for the night. And, like, you know, like you go, whoa, you know. And, you know, trying to explain to these guys financial literacy because 65%, and this is a scary statistic, 65% of all NBA players five years after they retire are broke. Mm. Now, that's bad. That's bad. 78% of football players are broke after two years, but they don't make as much money and the, the, lot, the careers aren't as long and the money's not as guaranteed. Right. So that concludes the portion of all the questions that I wanted to ask you, but I had a couple of my peers yeah. um, wanted to ask a couple of questions to you as, as well as some officials and some coaches. Um, what is the most gratifying aspect of being a basketball coach and what do you think is the most frustrating thing to deal with as a coach regarding players, spectators, and parents? Oh, that's a whole question. Uh, what was the first part again? What's the most gratifying aspect of being well, a Well, the gratifying coach? aspect is, you know, like yesterday, people don't realize we're trying to raise money for stuff we do in the offseason. We're in so many tournaments. And, you know, tournaments cost money. You know, and it's tough to just write out a check. You know, I get people, I put in my money. My assistant coach put in money for this 
entry fee. And here I am, now walking through Cardozo, going through every garbage can. <laughs> this is crazy. The custodians laugh. And grabbing as many empty water bottles, empty cans of soda, and I stick in a bag so that, you know, if you collect $5 a day, whatever, at the end of the week, it's 25 at the end of the month, you might have half an entry fee. And here I am yesterday in one of the classrooms, which we use for our film session, uh, blackboard discussions. And because I always say the first thing I do is I talk it. If it be a drill or a skill or a play, I talk it. Then I chalk it. So we do the talking and the chalking in the classroom. And then we do the walking on the court. So we talk it, we chalk it, we walk it. And here I am in the classroom that we always use and grabbing five or six water bottles. And I felt good because that was a place that kids always say after they graduate, Coach, I wish we could be in that room again because there's some, we, that's when we would just talk. You know, you let the kids be kids. You know, they have so much fun in that, that room that, you know, it was good to be back there. Now, it's sad because I can't be in my office anymore. Now, the second part of the question was, what do you think? So, you know, I'll just talk as an official, you know, just even your game. I remember you giving explicit instructions of things that you only know with the nuances of your team, but then you hear a parent going crazy and sometimes it might be their specific kid and they're trying to give them direct information that's contradictory to what you're saying. So having said that, what's the most frustrating thing you deal with as a coach regarding players, spectators? You know what I mean? Every coach goes through it. One of the things that's great is if you speak to other high school coaches, speak to college coaches, even NBA guys, you realize a lot of the problems that you think is just Cardozo basketball problems. It's not. It's everybody's problems. You know, so if I have a knucklehead kid, you know, that parents driving me crazy, or, you know, if you speak to a coach is honest, he's going through the same thing. Uh, you get to know the parents. You get to know the parents that are, that are trying to yell to, to see the team win. But then, unfortunately, now you have too many parents that they think they know more than me Mm. or they think they have the answers. And it's sad because, you know, they don't have the guts to say it to your face. And I would say to a parent, not that I do it, if you know the school of Cardozo, if you know the track record of kids that have graduated Cardozo, where they've gone, 91 Division One, how many D2s, D3s, NBA players overseas, college uh, players that are coaching in college and the pros now, and you compare us to every other school in Queens. Like last year, we had five senior starters. All five got Division One and Division Two scholarships. And you're sending the kid there because you think Cardozo is the king of Queens. Why do you bother me? Why do you bother me? You know, Coach Her- Bob Hurley, the legendary coach of St. Anthony's, I'm, I'm real tight with. And we talked about this about two years ago when the school was in its last year at St. Anthony's about parents. And he says, Ron, I'm getting parents complaining. So he's at the point, he just told the parent, I don't want to hear it. You know, if they, you want to say something nice, great. But if you talk about playing time or shot attempts, just take your kid out of the school. And it was funny, too, because... 
you have to do reverse psychology. I remember about a year or two ago, there was a parent acting like he had the uh, the next LeBron, and the parents, you know, like chiding me, oh, I might send my kid to Cardozo. I'm like, and I heard some of the other schools the person was trying to send him to. Plus the fact that just because you want to go to Cardozo, it doesn't mean you're definitely going to get in because it's not that easy to get in. But I said to the parent, why would you send the kid to Cardozo? So he goes, what do you mean? I said, listen, none of my kids ever graduated. We never win a game. We never have a chance of going to the playoffs. We, 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 if we do get into the playoffs, we get killed in the Queens Championship. We, we, we never get to the Garden. We've never won a city championship. I've never had a kid graduate. If a kid does graduate, he goes to Queensboro. I've never had a kid get a scholarship. You know, we never did anything. We never had it. And they looked at me like, what are you talking about? I said, don't send your kid to Cardozo. Please. And on top of that, the coach is crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? um, Carlos Martinez, who's the president of, of Board 119, he's a uh, PSAL official. He wanted to ask you, and he said he, you would know the answer. What is your biggest pet peeve that you have with respect to basketball officials? Oh, my God. Pet peeve? Well, I, I know how hard it is to ref. You know, you have to run up and down the court. You have one 1,000 to exhale or not exhale to make the call. And you can't get caught up with the the crowd or a coach. And, you know... I, I look at some coaches, they yell at a, at a call that they, they, they think they deserve to get, and now when and they don't get another call, they get on, like, they think, like, what do you really think, the referee's going to change it? Mm. I, I've, been refer- I've been coaching for 38 years. I've never seen a referee change a call, plus they don't have the advantage of you replay. Know, the replay. Right. I mean, the, I, I respect the officials, and, you know, my pet peeve, I wish I knew what the answer was, but I think that would be it. I respect the officials. The big, oh, the biggest thing that I, I think is communications, as long as you can talk to the ref. Because some referees act like they're the dean of students and you can't talk. As long as I could have some dialogue back and forth, ask a question, blah, blah, blah. You know, and like there was a game this year, the borough, the referee knew he blew the call. Uh, we had a problem with the sliding door, and we had a, it had to stay open, and the sliding door, the wire was hanging down. So first play of the game, a kid takes a long three with the shot clock laying down, throws it off, and it nicks the wire and becomes an air ball. And the kid lays it in, and I'm going wild. And then the referee came over to me in the pause. says, Coach, I didn't realize I see the wire shaking. It had to hit the wire. So what can I say? He goes, you mad at me? No. I said, I I respect you more. He goes, why? Because you came over and you admitted that now – you know, because basically you don't look at the flight of the ball, but it hit the wire because right. you saw the wire. Just because he sees that, you yeah. can't assume that that's what happened, even though we yeah, all yeah, know I what know. happened. So, so, you know, but the fa- and I respected the fact that he admitted he was wrong. I said, listen, you know, I'm, I'm wrong too. Sometimes with a with a defense I put in or a play I call or something. Mm. Uh, Derek Madry, um, he was a PSAL official. Yeah. He wanted to discuss about your time capsule. I know we talked about it before, but um, what he wanted to know is, are you rebuilding another time capsule in the office? Of your new one? No, the office is not an office. The office is a cubicle. When I took all the file cabinets and closets out and I stuck it in this cubicle, there's no room in there. It's basically a storage room. And one of the things that people don't realize is it wasn't my office. It was a room that I had a desk that 
I shared with other people. You know, I shared with a lacrosse coach who unfortunately died of cancer. I shared with a, a social studies teacher who was uh, the girls' softball coach. You know, and over the years, I shared it. Eight or nine coaches used that room, but they let me, you know, put the pictures up there. And uh, there's not even room. It's a, if, if somebody saw the room now, it's like a store. I, I don't even know if you can have two chairs in there to sit down. Mm. You know, it's amazing because Ted Gustus is trying to do a New York City Hall of Fame building. Uh, I got a phone call yesterday from the museum on 103rd and 5th. They're doing a, a, a history of New York City basketball next year, and they want to somehow replicate that office in the museum. And I'm saying... This is amazing how this office, which was, believe it, it had, I'm telling you this, it was the nicest room in the New York City Board of Education in any room. It was ungodly. There was so much history in there. But, and I'm saying, if, if they're trying to replicate it, what would the principal say to a museum that wants to replicate it, the New York City Basketball Fame wants to replicate it in a room, when she says there are no shrines at Cardozo, and I looked at her, like, are you smoking something? I mean, you know, I mean, come on, you know. But what can you do? Yeah. Sky Khalil, who you're going to attend his wedding, he wanted to ask you, Cardozo has a rich history in producing some of the best city guards. Skip to Malou, Daryl Hill, Showtime, Royal Showtime. Ivy, Killer Cam, Cameron Tyler, Victor Morris, and re most recently, uh, Ray. Um, can you take a moment to talk about how they played the game, and what made them special as Cardozo guards? They were kids that came into Cardozo living the dream, but working to have the dream become a reality. And so many kids go to other schools, you know, and they talk about, you know, I'm going to get 15, I'm going to get 20, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. You know, they have their individual goals, their team goals, and at the end of their four years, they might not have reached, they definitely didn't reach their team goals individually. You know, they might overrate what they thought were goals. But those handful of kids made Cardozo special, made Cardozo great, and what they did after Cardozo, their resumes are awesome. I mean... And when you talk about some of those guards, what they did at Cardozo was special because they were not queen soft. They, they were a major part of the reason when Brooklyn Seas were playing Cardozo, when Bronx Seas were playing Cardozo, when, when Manhattan Seas were playing Cardozo, they say, damn, we're playing the one team in the borough of Queens that's got heart, that's got toughness, that's got intensity, that's got desire. You know, I do know, and I don't want to disrespect the other schools and the programs, but just from being around the coaches, they, they say, you know, if we have to play a Queens team, you know, in the playoffs, we love to as long as it's not Cardozo. And that makes me feel good, you know, it makes me feel good because, you know, I'm in competition with the other boroughs as well as Queens, even though I wish, you know, Queens, but, you know, Queens does have their players. I mean, if you look at the NBA players and the Division One players. I mean, you know, tonight when you're, you know, if this is going to be live, it's 
you're going to see a kid from Forest Hills High School was my second biggest mistake starting for Portland Trailblazers, Maurice Hartless. You know, I mean, the other four boroughs, they can't say they're going to see somebody, you know, in the final four. So I'm really, really happy. And is there another, what was the other part with Derek? Um, no, that was, that was it. Just what, well, he said, if you can rank them, but I know you're not going to do that. You can't. I mean, because it's also hard. Like, what happens if a kid was the best high school player? He did everything in high school, but didn't do it in college or pro. Mm. What about a guy that was a little beyond, be, behind a, another Cardozo guy in high school, but his college career was better? Right. Or what about a guy that was really good in high school and college, but all of a sudden now tops it off with a pro career? Right. So it's, it's so hard. And, like, you know, people say, who is the greatest Cardozo player? I don't know. I mean, who is the... Top 10? I mean, I, I tease a lot of kids. I go, just to be in the top 25. Because when you think of all of the, I mean, just to be in the top 25, you got to be a BMF, a bad mother. Watch your mouth. Mm. <laughs> um, I know you, you talk about your inaugural season, the 121 oh, has God. been your guiding light. <laughs> what would you consider the best team that you ever had? And what team brings you the most fondest memories? I would have to see the, say the two teams that won the city championship the first time was unbelievable. Uh, you know, I had Royal Ivy, NBA, Brian Woodward, who tore his ACL twice, was at Rhode Island. Brian Special Effects Williams, everybody knows him from Streetball Legend as being maybe the best dunker in New York City the last 25 years, going to St. John's. Daryl Showtime Hill uh, was on the bench on that team. Be a Dougie Faith, NYU, who now is doing really well in, in uh, Philadelphia in, in the housing business. Uh, we had Mike Salamanca shooting 28 for 28 from the foul line in the five games in the playoffs. Uh, we had Tremaine Singletary, San Diego State. That was a great team. And uh, the year before, we had a great record. We were like 21-2. and two. And one kid got hurt, and then Brian Williams, Ryan Brian Woodward, whose knee was bothering him the whole year, was supposedly cleared to play, but I knew something wasn't right. And I went to the St. John's doctor and, and the, the, the New York Nick doctor, and he looked at the kid, and he had a torn ACL. So here we are playing without two major components. And, of course, we got upset by Springfield. So I think that pain of losing... Guided you it, to the next year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Kind of like how the Spurs lost to the Heat yeah, and then yeah, they came yeah, back yeah, with a yeah, vengeance. And then, this, and then with all of the tough losses in between 99 to 2013 in the playoffs, something going wrong, a crazy Hail Mary shot, you know, kids that were normally 80% foul shooters going 0 for 5, 0 for 4, or, or some kid on the other team, you know, not hitting a 3, banking in a 3, and here we are. Uh, with a sophomore-laden team led by, you know, Rashawn Salnave. And here we are, just winning and winning and winning. And next thing you know, we're at Barclays Arena. Uh, down five with a minute and 26, then three with a minute, one with 19 seconds to go. We jump the ball handler. A kid steals the ball, has a breakaway, blows the breakaway layup, down one. We have two tips, both tips they were fighting for. The ball goes out of bounds off of Cardozo. We press, they can't inbound the ball, Jefferson. We press again, they get the ball in. 
We foul Shamari Pons. He misses the one-on-one. Elijah McNeely gets the rebound, uh, gets the ball from Carl Baltazar. We're all yelling, give it to Ray, give it to Ray. And Ray comes down the line and the lane and gets fouled with 2.5 seconds to go. And I'm like, nahum, nahum, nahum. And, and I'm saying, oh, my God, what happens if he misses two? He's going to have to live with it maybe for the rest of his life because we didn't think we could win it that year. We thought when the crew of the five or six sophomores were juniors and seniors, we could. And I see Ray's mother, who I love, but she's she's tough. She's she's very loud at a game, and she's yelling at me, "Coach, get him to focus, get him to focus." And I'm shaking my head, and I, you know, they see her in the crowd, and I go, and the Jefferson coach calls two timeouts, and I go, "How do I get a sixteen-year-old kid to focus? Mm. Taking two foul shots, and you know." And I remember all the pain, and I realized, no. And I didn't have the heart to look. And I closed my eyes, and I started praying. And I heard the crowd, and I turned. He hit the first one, and goes, yeah. And I knew we had a, a timeout. I ran uh, to Herb Turetsky, who was the scorekeeper for the Nets, to make sure he, he kept the book, that we had a timeout, because if we hit the foul shot, I was going to call timeout. And I didn't look. And it went in. The refs knew because I told them time out. And then we had 2.5 seconds to go. And I just, I had two timeouts left. And I took one to calm the kids down, a 30-second timeout. The second, I took the five kids in the game to get away from everybody. And I just started saying, please, fellas, don't blow this. No fouls. And thank God, you know, they didn't hit the Hail Mary a kid took about a 60-foot air ball, and, you know, when you see it falling short and wide right, all of a sudden, and then, uh, you know, we jumped in the huddle. I had, I got out. My coach hugged me, a couple of guys, and then before that game, I broke down and cried because I thought the pain of defeat was going to happen again, and I just told him I'm going to be proud of you guys anyway, and... I realized when we won, I'd probably cry in the locker room, tears of joy. I quickly put my cell phone on, called my mother. She picked up. I go, we won. We won lucky. We won by one. She goes, what? I go, we won. We won lucky. We won by one. I have to go. And I shut the cell phone off. And next thing you know, I just started crying for five, ten minutes. All the pain, all the tough losses, you know, and then... You know, I was embarrassed to cry in front of everybody, and I saw Francisco Williams. He was crying in Mazouk, and so it just became a cryathon. And a lot of pictures were taken and made all the papers of me crying, which I didn't care. And then I found out later that two of my assistant coaches they walked into the tunnel, they started crying. Parents were crying, so you know I didn't mind. And then uh, when I got to the locker room, because uh, there was a press conference we had to go to, but I saw that Jefferson was in there and. But I went in there and the kids doused me with a jug of Gatorade, and that was the greatest feeling ever. Hmm. So my final question to you, um, how long do you plan on coaching? When do you think it would time to be stepped down? Do you think it's when you are not effective anymore? And do you have a succession plan in mind? Well, a successor at Cardozo doesn't mean anything because I don't have the choice to pick somebody. Uh, you know, you have to apply for the job and the principal would pick it, you know, and I'm sure the principal, if it's the principal who's there now, would pick someone in her eyes, which 
probably would be a mistake. I don't know if the principal would be there, you know, when I finally give it up or when I drop dead. Uh, right now, I plan on coaching. I want to coach. I mean, I need basketball in me. It's in my blood. I need that basketball transfusion. I want to coach. You know, and unless a great job offer comes up, I'll plan, I plan on being there for, for a long time. Hmm. So, Ron, this has been great. Um, I learned a lot about you, and um, I want to thank you for all your contributions in the game of basketball. And I think that this recording, um, this will be for all time, and it'll be kind of a time capsule that you could always listen to and, and kind of distribute to your players and, and, and everyone. So I just wanted to thank you for your career, continued success. Is there any final thoughts that you want to say before we part ways? Well, you know what, too? Like, you know, you have to have fun because I enjoy the kids. The kids keep you young. And, uh, you know, the kids laugh when I start rapping sometimes. So, you know, You're going to rap right now? I or? have a rap sometimes. But, you know, everyone loves a player in the court of hustles and dives. I wanted to coach basketball. I end up coaching lives. <laughs> People see me coach. They say I'm bugged. I'm hyper. They say I'm totally crazy. 20 years ago I did this. I would have been Jay-Z. <laughs> <laughs> And I got that. When the kids see me like, Coach, man, he's bugging. You know, oh, so, man. You know, and the, and the thing is, too, is like the kids, especially from the 80s and 90s, early 2000s, you know, I'd get on the court and play with them. Mm. You know, I remember the last kid I played, Shelton McHale. He was a very good player, old Queens kid. You know, and I would warm up every day. And the kid coach, what are you doing? What are you doing? So I knew this was the day my shot was on. I come up, yo, I stick the ball in him. We go one-on-one. And I won 21-4. But that was the last time I played. That was it, huh? <laughs> yeah, you I went like, out on top. I can still go north to south. I have no chance of going east to west. Yeah, I know the feeling. I'm getting <laughs> old my damn self. So uh, for Coach Leclario, this is Ralph the Ref. This is The Rant. We're signing out.